We are continuing in our series on the book of Hebrews. You have your Bible, you can open it to chapter 12. You can be looking at verses 3 to 11. God's word says this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In 2006, I graduated from Gettysburg College, and I had a degree in health and physical education. At that moment, I was engaged, and I had my life all planned out. I was going to get a teaching job. I was going to teach and coach for 25 years and then retire with a full pension. My first interview was uh, with one of my former track coaches who was now the principal of the school. That was good. When I was a senior, I had been crowned Mr. EHT. <laughs> so that was good. I had a connection with someone on the school board. I had excellent references. I had recommendation letters, and I did not get the job. In fact, I didn't get any of the public school jobs that I applied for over the next couple years. Why would God do this? Why didn't he help me get my dream job? I was a little bit frustrated. I was discouraged. I ended up uh, a year or so later, working for my friend Tim, installing granite countertops, working in his business. It was a good job with a, with a great future, uh, but I was a little bit discontent. And then my friendship with Tim, we were really, really good friends. It, it started to get a little bit rocky, and neither of us could, could put our finger on the source of the problem, uh, but we could both sense that there was this tension building in our relationship. Once again, I was, I was struggling to see what God was doing. Did you ever wonder what God was doing in your life? Why aren't things going the way you planned? 
Or maybe you, just you feel beat down by the situations in your life or your own personal struggles, the, the struggles of, of people around you. Maybe you feel like wave after wave just keeps knocking you down. You're weary, you're exhausted, you're worn out. Maybe right now life's pretty good, but, but you look back on things that have happened in your past and you're, you're still trying to find purpose in them or trying to make sense of why they happened. In these times, in times of, of trial, times when we're, we're doubting, times of, of weariness, what matters most is how we think about God. Our struggles often make us think that God is, is distant. Kind of like Dan shared earlier, that God's 10,000 miles away. Sometimes they think, make us think that God's not happy. We can ask questions like, what did I do to deserve this? God must be mad at me again. Trials make us question his love for us. So the author of our passage today in Hebrews 12 he wants to give us a hopeful outlook that will help change our perspective in trials. He wants us to see that trials are not an indication of God's distance or God's anger, but they're actually an indication of his goodness. They're an indication of his perfect fatherly love and his desire that we would grow, that we would grow to be more and more like Jesus. So how does the author give us hope in weariness? We're going to look at two points today. First, in verses 3 to 4, he encourages us to consider Jesus. And then in verses 5 to 11, he encourages us to change our perspective in suffering. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So his first encouragement for us to find hope in weariness is to consider Jesus. The word consider here. Uh, means to, to think deeply or contemplate intently. It's not just a suggestion, well, you might want to think about Jesus. Like if one of my kids smells and I say, you might want to consider taking a shower. It, it's not like that. But we're to, we're to contemplate, we're to, we're to think deeply. We're to think about the pain and suffering of Jesus at the hand of those he encountered in this world. We're to think about his suffering, his death on the cross. But at first it kind of sounds like the author is comparing our suffering to Jesus' suffering and saying, look, he had it worse than you. Your suffering isn't that bad, so just stop complaining. But his purpose it isn't to, to say that. He wants to lift our focus off of our current circumstances and remind us of all that Jesus has done for us. He, want to he wants to remind us that Jesus' suffering had purpose. Often when I face 
pain or, or trials or suffering, though it's, it's real, in my mind, I, I can tend to make it worse than it actually is. I can tend to, to blow things out of proportion and, and whine and complain, usually to my wife. Now, this isn't to diminish suffering. Some of you here have, you've suffered and, and you are suffering in, in hard ways. But I think in general, when we face suffering, um, complaining is very close. But as we consider Jesus, as we consider his suffering, we can consider his attitude in suffering. Jesus suffered complaint-free. If anyone ever had a reason to say, this is unfair, it was Jesus. But his perspective was the joy before him. Instead of focusing on his suffering, he focused on pleasing his father. He focused on his mission to give his life on the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because in suffering, he entrusted his life to God. I don't like discomfort in my life. I don't like pain or trials. When things are hard, my first reaction is not to consider Jesus. It's usually to wonder, when is this going to get better? As I was working on this message this week, I was just particularly feeling weary and beat down and overwhelmed by all the different situations in my life. And my first reaction wasn't, let me put into practice what I'm going to preach on on Sunday. It was just to be grumpy and short and complaining in my mind. And so if, if you can relate to that, then you're in good company. If the painful situations of your life and the things that confuse you, if they, if they make you weary, then lift your eyes off your trials and look to Jesus. Consider him, learn about him, grow in your love for him, think about all that he has done for you. Think about his example of patiently enduring evil while entrusting his life to God. Think deeply and contemplate intently the incredible salvation that he accomplished for you through his life, death, and resurrection. Learn from him. Learn about him. And as you do, as you consider Jesus, God will work in you. He will give you hope in weariness to lift your eyes off of your suffering and onto your Savior. Second, the author wants us to change our perspective in suffering. So he begins in verse 5 with this exhortation or this encouragement that he wants to remind us of. He says this in verses 5 to 8. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The specific encouragement that the author wants to remind us of is God's active discipline in our lives shows us that he loves us. How can that be? In verses 5 to 6, he quotes from Proverbs 3. And the main point is that good fathers discipline their children. They train them, they correct them, they teach and lead them in the way that they should go. In the Bible, this is the expectation for fathers. And so the author in verse 7, he asks this rhetorical question. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? In the culture that this was written to, that was a good rhetorical question. The mark of a good father was one who lovingly disciplined his children out of concern for their growth and maturity. But if you ask that question of our culture, what son is there whom his father does not discipline, we'd look around and say, a lot. There's a lot of kids that need some discipline. Strong fathers who discipline their children aren't necessarily the norm in our culture. But the Bible gives us a much different picture of fatherhood. Biblically, fathers are told to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The expectation is that fathers, out of both a love for God and a love for their children, would lovingly discipline them. And the purpose of that is they would demonstrate to their children something of the character of God. Something of his love and his heart for them. As a church, this is, this is something we see as essential. We see this picture of what fathers are supposed to be. And, and dads, we want to build into you. We want to encourage you. We want to equip you. We want to come alongside you. That's, that's some of the reason why we do our children and youth ministry the way that we do in, in incorporating parents. So we can encourage you. So we can talk about struggles together so that this church can be made up of strong men who are strong fathers, who are examples of biblical fatherhood. And so the point of these verses is that a loving and responsible father will discipline us in the same way that our loving God does. God will at times discipline us. And when he does, verse 7 says he's treating us as his legitimate children. There's a lot of kids in this church, and I only have to discipline five because they're my children. They're the ones I'm responsible for. God's active work of Discipline in our lives is proof of his fatherly love. 
He sometimes allows hard and painful things to come into our life because he sees them as essential for our growth. But to really understand this, we have to define this word discipline. In this passage, this word discipline is used nine times. Discipline here does not mean punishment. If you are a Christian, God does not punish you for your sin. Jesus took the full punishment for our sin. He satisfied God's wrath against our sin when he died in the cross, on the cross in our place. He satisfied God's anger against our sin. There is no more punishment for your sin. And so discipline here is not punishment, but it's correction. It's training in the right direction. So when I use the word discipline, think of it more how an athlete trains their body in the right direction. As they train, they're preparing for competition. An athlete that sits around all day eating donuts is not going to be ready for the competition. Ease doesn't make a good athlete. But through rigorous training and the discipline of their body, they'll be prepared for competition. In the same way, growth in the Christian life is through God's active involvement. In the second half of verse 10, we read that discipline is for our good, that we might share in God's holiness. Through discipline, God is molding and shaping our character. What he allows into our life is always purposeful and it's ultimately beneficial because he is working to make us more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. More and more like what we will be in eternity and less and less like what we are right now. So how do you know when God's disciplining you? Is it when you have a bad day? Is it when your car won't start? Or you get an F on your math quiz? When the toast burns? What's the difference between a regular hardship and God's discipline? Let me ask another question. Is there something in your life that God should be disciplining you for? Is there a reason that God may need to bring a corrective adjustment to you? Is there something that God needs to do to bring you back to your senses or lead you in a better way? Is there an area where God thinks you need to grow? If yes, then God may discipline you. He may train you in a certain direction to help you grow in a specific way. This could be through the, the gentle encouragement of a friend who reminds you of, of one simple truth in the Bible that, that brings change into your life. Or 
God might use some life-altering situation that could cause you to rely on him more. God might discipline us through his word as it's preached or as we read it. Through others, through maybe their encouragement, their rebuke, or their example. Through his church, through teaching, training, and accountability. God uses any means that is necessary. So if you're going through a situation and you can see this, that, that God is at work, then maybe he is using that situation to discipline you, to train you. But we can't always make that connection between the specific situations of our life and where God is working. We can ask God, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? But a lot of times it remains a mystery. Sometimes we get flat tires. Sometimes God uses flat tires to grow our patience. So God's discipline isn't every time something goes wrong or every time we have a bad day, but God may use those things to work in us and to grow us in holiness. So how does that give us hope? How does seeing our experiences of, of trials or, or discipline through the loving purposes of God, how does that give us hope? Well, in verse 10, our author expands this idea of fatherly discipline. He compares God's discipline again to the discipline of, of parents. He says, for they, for, for parents, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. The discipline of parents is limited in two ways. First, as parents, we correct our kids, we discipline them in the way that, that we think is best. We make the best decision at the time with the, the limited wisdom that we have. But often, we don't get it right. Often we make bad decisions when it comes to how we discipline our kids. I, I try to discipline my kids in love and with patience, but I don't always do it perfectly. Sometimes I have to ask for their forgiveness. Sometimes I'm too harsh or I'm unfair. Sometimes I'm just too lazy to discipline them in the first place. Second, as, as parents, we only have a few short years to invest in our children. Once they're out of the, the house, they're not under the, the same type of authority. But God's discipline is different. God's discipline is for our entire life, and he knows what's best. He never makes a bad decision. Every decision he makes will benefit us. God's discipline always has redemptive purposes, meaning it's, it, it's always for our good. There's always purpose for our growth in godliness. Think about this. As a parent, you look back on the parenting of your children with some regrets. If you're like me, you can look back and go, there's things I wish I did differently. 
But God looks back with no regrets. Always perfect in what he has allowed to touch your life. That's hard to understand. If that wasn't here for us in the Bible, we would doubt that that was true. But we can learn to trust God. We can learn to have faith when God is lovingly disciplining us or using difficulty to direct our life. We like to quote Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good. We like that verse. If that's true, then how can adversity be good? How can a good God bring pain into our life? That doesn't seem good. Well, if you go down to the next verse, God works all things together for good. Verse 29, for those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Once you become a Christian, God's plan is to conform your life into the image of his son. He will use whatever is needed to mold and shape your life to look more like Jesus. That's what verse 10 says, to share in his holiness. So we can say God works all things together for good, even trials, because trials help to conform us to the image of his son to change our character, to look more and more like Jesus. And that is always good. In fact, that's the greatest good that can come in our life. That's, that's God's will for your life, that you would grow in holiness. And so that gives us hope because God sees perfectly how every specific trial will bring us good. I told part of my story at the beginning of this message. As I was getting rejected for those teaching jobs and as my current job with my friend Tim wasn't going like I expected, I was, I was struggling to see what good could come out of it. And then one day I got a call from Pastor Jerry Smith, who used to be one of the pastors here at Green Tree. And he offered me a job here at the church working with children and in youth ministry. I was excited about it, but I was worried how Tim, my current boss, would react because at that point I was helping to run his company. And I was worried that that would actually break our already strained relationship. When I shared the news with Tim, he was ecstatic. He was excited because he could see it was God's hand at work directing my life. In these times, I was, I was doubting God. Why didn't he get me those teaching jobs that I wanted? Why was there trouble in my current job? Why was I, I so discontent? But God was working in those trials. He was working in the disappointments to direct my life for good. And so here I stand 17 years later. 
after graduating from college, I never imagined I would be a pastor of this church. It's a privilege to serve here. And God has used this role to grow me in ways that I never imagined. God has used the influence and uh, encouragement and challenge of the other pastors here. He's used the, the ways I've been able to serve and learn and grow. He's used your example as a church family to impact and to, to change me. What at one point was disappointing and confusing, now I can see God's hand directing it all for my good directing it all for my growth. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to be really excited about trials and hardship. God's not trying to get us to enjoy pain. It's okay to say that you're hurting. It's okay to admit and feel pain. It's, it's okay to not be okay when you are facing hard times. That's what verse 11 says. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's hard in the middle of suffering to see what, might, what good might come to see where God might be taking you, where he might be growing you. In those times, we just want things to be better. We just want them to change. But the author is reminding us here to change our perspective, to trust God in suffering, to hold off on our, our doubtful thoughts of him and remember that we are in the hands of our good and loving father. He knows where he's taking us. He knows how the story will end. He will never look back and wish he had done things differently. Specific hardships, they might not make sense to us, but they, they make sense to God. And they come from his loving hand with purpose. All discipline seems painful, but later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In the second half of this verse, we're given two pictures. And these pictures, we see the results that God intends through his loving discipline. The first picture is, is from the farming world. It's that word, yield fruit. That's a term that means to produce a crop. A farmer doesn't just scatter some seed on the soil and hope for the best. He has to, to till the soil. He has to plant the seed down in the ground, water, fertilizer, pull weeds, deal with pests. God is like that good farmer. He's working in the soil of our lives to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness, to produce a life that is pleasing to him. God doesn't just, just sprinkle a little seed and leave us on our own. He digs in the soil of our life. He waters. He deals with pests and weeds. He's actively working. The second picture is from the athletic world. We see that in the, ver uh, the word trained in verse 14. 
This is the, the training of an athlete for competition. In high school, uh, I ran track. And my coach's name was George Wilkinson. He passed away a number of years ago. But as uh, we were getting ready for practice, we would be warming up and stretching on the track. And his silver Toyota would pull up to the track. And he would walk out, and he was typically wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt and his orange uh, Texas Longhorns hat. He had some whistles and uh, timers around his neck. He was holding his clipboard, and he would get out of that truck, and he would yell, get on the bloodline. The bloodline was what he called the starting line for the track. When he said, get on the bloodline, you knew it was going to be a bad workout. You knew it was going to be tough. You knew that there was some pain. Now, in those workouts, we might have questioned his sanity. We might have questioned why in the world is he putting us through this workout. But we never doubted his love for us. We never doubted his care. And after that workout, after you got through it, you knew that you were ready. You knew that you were prepared for race day. God is like a good coach. Sometimes he brings into our life what isn't pleasant to train us for that day, to train us for the day when Christ returns. An, an easy life doesn't usually teach us the lessons God wants us to learn. And the absence of discipline, the absence of trials, though that's what we would prefer, it doesn't grow us in the ways God wants. So understanding this, understanding God's active work, it it changes our perspective. It gives us hope because we can see that whatever God allows, he has purpose behind it. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul creates this chain that starts with suffering and ends with hope. What connects those two links on the chain together is endurance that produces character. Or to use the language of our passage here, training that produces a harvest of righteousness. God's discipline in our lives produces growth in godly character and that should give us hope because it shows us that God's love is at work in our lives. If you're a, a student 
or young adult here, you may hear this message and go, my life's pretty easy. I haven't had a lot of trials or difficulty. Your church family has. There are men and women in this church who have been through all kinds of difficulty and trials. They have the wisdom and the experience of walking through trials, learning what it means to trust God in the middle. Some have lost loved ones. Some have failed businesses. Some have made huge mistakes, but God has been faithful. God has been at work, and they serve as an example to you of God's loving, fatherly care directing their life, growing and maturing them to look more like Jesus. So young adults, high school students, as you go through your life, And as you may begin to face trials and challenges, consider the the men and women who God has put in your church and, and learn from them. Understand how they trusted God in walking through trials and difficulty. Church, the next time you feel weary by the situations in your life, the next time you are doubted, are doubting God's goodness. Consider Jesus. Consider that everything that comes into your life, the good and the bad, comes from the hand of a loving Father who allows it for your good that you might share in his holiness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that is in this passage. Lord, we thank you that it's here because as we face trials, we can see that you are good and that you have purpose. But Lord, in the middle of trials, in the middle of discipline, we so often lacked faith. We often lack faith to believe that this is true. And so we ask by the power of your spirit that you would give us faith to believe and faith to trust you beyond what our eyes can see. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.